Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org. The date is Tuesday, October the 9th. Uh, this is 2012. Almost a significant date here, which our guests will explain. This is our special program series, and we're honored again to welcome our dear friend and noted talk show host, teacher, historian, scholar, Mr. Ira Fistel, to our telephone. He's going to talk about the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I think the way to start here is to say first that if you grow up in the city of Chicago, you are never very far from memories of the Great Fire of 1871. When we were in school, uh, October 8th in Chicago has always been Fire Prevention Day for a very good reason. October 8th was the date that the Great Fire started. And it burned from Sunday evening, October the 8th, all through the next day and into the next night, and wasn't really put out until it began to rain early in the morning of Tuesday the 10th. So we're going to talk about the Great Fire tonight. I remember being in grade school, and this time of the year, every October, the fire department would send firemen in their jackboots and their big hats and their you know rubber coats, and the firemen would come to school, and they would tell the kids about fire safety. Uh, you would you cannot be a Chicagoan and not be very much aware of the danger of fire. If you see Chicago today, you will notice that within the city limits, there are very few frame buildings. That's because of the Great Fire of 1871. When the city was rebuilt, there were laws saying that you could not build a frame building. They had to use brick or some other non-burnable uh, non-burnable substance, Baker Stone or something like that. And in Chicago today, the city limits, within the city limits, most of the buildings, nearly all the buildings, are of fireproof material, all because of what happened in 1871. little background about the 1871 fire. Chicago had been founded as a village in 1833, and at that time, it had just a few people, a handful. But the city is located at the axis point, and I, I mean AXIS, of the north, south, and east, west routes across the North American continent. It is at the southern tip of Lake Michigan, which means that all traffic from east to west has to go south of Lake Michigan. And if it's anywhere north or near north of Lake Michigan, it has to go through Chicago. Also, from the lake, a small river, Chicago River, is within a short portaging distance of the Plains River, which eventually runs into the Illinois River. And the Illinois River runs into the Mississippi. And so there is a water route connecting the Great Lakes with the Gulf of Mexico. So Chicago sits right at the crossroads of the north-south route from the Great Lakes and uh, Canada and Europe down to the Gulf of Mexico, the water route from north to south, and the overland route from
from east to west between the eastern states, New England, New York, Pennsylvania, uh, north central states, to the west. Now, not only that, but the land around Chicago, particularly uh, west of Illinois and then Iowa beyond that, and then Nebraska beyond that, the land is extremely fertile the Mississippi Valley particularly. It is probably the great growing area in the world, if you think of the size of it, because it extends from the mountains in uh, Pennsylvania on the east all the way to the Rockies in the west. Uh, you grow different kind of crops because some of that area has more water than others. Uh, it doesn't rain much in Nebraska and uh, eastern Colorado you know, because of the mountains. But you can grow wheat there. And Illinois and Indiana, just, just to the east of it, and Iowa, just to the west of it, are the great corn states. Corn and soybeans are the huge crops. So all that fertile land in 1830 or so was virtually empty. The only people living there were Indian tribes. And after the War of 1812, there was a land rush across the Appalachians, where the British no longer were there to stop the colonists from coming. And the Midwest filled up rather early, so that with all that farmland and people growing things on it, the city of Chicago, sitting as it did on the transportation crossroads of the, of the continent, was bound to grow. And indeed, it did grow. Beginning with 1833, when it was founded, uh, it had a few people. By the time of the Civil War, it had oh, 100,000 or more. By 1871, the population was at least 300,000. By 1900, it was over a million. And it peaked in 1960, I believe, or 1950, right in there, at 3.5 million people in the city, not counting the suburbs. No other great city in America has ever grown that that big, that fast. In, in other words, in 60 years or so, Chicago went from nothing to a million, and in 100 years, from, from nothing to three million. Fantastic. Well, what do you do to uh, house all those new people? Well, the cheapest and most flexible and most easy building material is wood. And in the forests of Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan, just north of Chicago, were huge stands of untouched virgin timber. And much of that wood was cut and turned into building materials for the city of Chicago. Beginning with 1833, virtually everything in Chicago for the next 40 or 50 years was built of wood. Not only were buildings built of wood, but so were the streets. The streets were paved with wood. Those sidewalks were wood planks. Uh, you can imagine how uh, burnable that was with all those wooden buildings and wooden sidewalks and wooden streets. Not only that, but the city had many trees. Uh, Chicago is a, a very very treeful city, and today is no exception. It still is. Then there is the problem of what you make 
roofs out of? Well, in the 1800s, 60,000 buildings, at least 40,000 entirely of wood, and most of the other 20,000 mostly of wood, the ceilings, the roofs rather, were made of wooden shingles or tar or some kind of tar paper or felt, and they were flammable too. So great fires didn't just happen in Chicago. They happened because there was a reason why they happened. The city was prone to fire because of its construction. There was a great deal of flimsy construction, not very solid and easily burnable. So the city was a giant tinderbox, if you want to think of it that way. Then came the weather. Ordinarily, it rains in Chicago a lot during the summer. Storms frequently in the city of Chicago today. And, of course, uh, they had thunderstorms then, too, a lot of rain. But in the summer, it was the driest summer in the history of the city up to that time. But that year, in 1871, from the 4th of July to the first week in October, normally there was a total of eight or nine inches of rain. But that year, in 1871, less than two inches had fallen, and that was distributed over six different days over that period of four or five months. So everything was dry as tinder. On top of that, the leaves on all those trees were withered early because of the dryness. And there were huge piles of dry leaves covering the ground. Well, didn't the people of the city realize they were in fire danger? Sure they did. The city of Chicago was paying huge amounts of money for fire insurance. In 1871, people in the city paid more money for fire insurance than for all the state, county, and municipal taxes. There had been, in 1868, a big fire on Lake Street, which had done more than $2 million of damage and hastened the exodus of stores from Lake Street to State Street, the new shopping district, which had been begun by Potter Palmer, who had interests on State Street and wanted to make that the center of the city. And indeed, the focus turned away from the river where Lake Street was, despite its name, Lake Street's close to the river, and to State Street, which parallels the lakefront. And that fire in 1868 changed the center of the city. There was another great fire. Before the, the great fire of October 8th, believe it or not, there was a great fire on October 7th. Hardly anybody ever remembers that unless you study the Chicago fire. But on Saturday, October 7th, a 17-hour fire destroyed four square blocks west of the river. Um, along what is now Canal Street, where Union Station is, and high-rise buildings, whatever. That fire burned all day and into the night of Saturday, October 7th. And the fire department, which was, of course, undermanned and uh, had not, a, not enough equipment, who could ever have enough equipment with a, you know, with a fire-prone city like that? Those firemen fought that fire for the seven years and were finished with it. They were dead tired. And 
many of the fire engines had been damaged. So Sunday, October 8th, was not the time to start another fire. Now, there's another thing to think about in Chicago. It's called the Windy City. It's not called the Windy City because it's windier than most cities. It's called the Windy City because of all the talk and all the bragging and all the boasting that was done at the presidential convention in 1860 that nominated Abraham Lincoln. But the wind does blow in Chicago, and if you know baseball, you know that when the wind is blowing from the southwest, balls jump out of Wrigley Field, and the score can be 23 to 22. Because the wind from the southwest, which blows in the summer, can be very strong. And that's the way the wind often blows in the summer, especially in the hot days of the summer, July and August. And wind, of course, is one of the biggest reasons why fires get out of control. So here we are on October 8th. Now, another thing you have to know about the city of Chicago is it's almost perfectly flat. There are very, very few elevations, and most of those, if there are already, are just a few feet high. So the city had a fire prevention idea. A watchman was planted in the courthouse tower, the cupola on top of the courthouse, which was the tallest thing around, the tallest building around, and that was downtown in the center of the city. And the watchman had an electronic device next to him where he could tell the operator to ring the firebox at the local fire stations whenever he saw from his perch flame or smoke. And the watchman was up there 24 hours a day. During the daytime, of course, you could see smoke. At night, he could see flame. And then he would tell the operator, who was down uh, right below him, um, ring box so-and-so at, at the corner of so-and-so street, uh, firehouse number whatever. And the firemen would uh, slide down the poles and you know, harness up the horses, and off they'd go to the fire. Well, that's a nice system. There were also fire boxes all over the city where citizens could turn in alarms, and that was an electronic way of getting uh, warning to the fire department that there were fires. So the city felt fairly confident, even though everything was so dry and there was such a um, huge amount of wood and tar and whatever, people still felt reasonably comfortable. Another reason why they felt comfortable was because in 1867, the city opened a new waterworks. The waterworks had big pumps that could send water through mains throughout the city, and it had a tower, a water tower, from which the water pumped to the top would flow down by gravity and flow through the pipes. And the opening of the waterworks gave Chicagoans the feeling that all the water of Lake Michigan would be available whenever they needed it. What's more, they saw the clear water coming through their faucets, right into their houses. And they remembered the days when the, the water had fish in it, and the pipes didn't work. And the, Well, anyway, the water tower and the new waterworks were considered, you know, fireproof. They were built of stone, and they were considered the, the safety of the city. 
Now we come to the evening of Sunday, October 8th, 1871. The Little Giant Fire Company had its uh, headquarters about at about what is now 14th Street near Canal Street, a little bit south of uh, what is now Central City. This was an area of small homes, and people in this area often kept chickens and cows and geese and uh, other animals in their backyards with little barns. That night, at about 9 o'clock at night, the watchman from the Little Giant Fire Company, Firehouse, six blocks or so to the south, saw flames burning six blocks or so to the north of it. And the little giant harnessed up the horses, and off they went. As they were leaving the firehouse, however, the fire station telegraph sounded an alarm. But that alarm was for a fire nearly a mile further south. So the little giant company ignored the warning and headed for the fire they could see. Now that fire turned out to be at a a little street called DeCoven Street. DeCoven is a little east-west street about three or four blocks north of what is now Roosevelt Road, 12th Street. And on that block, there were three barns, and there was a paint shop, and there was a shed, and the three barns were all burning. When the firemen from the Little Giant Company arrived, they were told by bystanders that the fire had already been going for almost an hour. So the flames actually must have started sometime around 8 or a little after 8 o'clock that evening. Well, the fire company went right to work, but they wondered why no other fire engines came to join them. And with just one engine, they had trouble with the fire because of the wind. The wind was coming up out of the southwest as, of course, uh, you could expect. And the one engine could not control the three burning barns and other the shed and the other things that started to, uh, to burn. What's more, the wooden cottages and the sheds and whatever were built close together, and a lot of them were cheaply built, so that fire spread rather easily. When the firemen got there, they found a man with one leg missing. His name was Pegleg Sullivan, that's what he was called. And he was standing with his hair singed across the street from the fire, holding on to the neck of a frightened calf. Pegleg said that he had seen the fire in the barn behind the O'Leary house, Patrick and Catherine O'Leary's house, and the calf was one of five cattle kept by Mrs. O'Leary. He saw the fire and went into the barn to try to rescue the animals. Well, his peg leg stuck in a wooden chink in the floor, so thinking rapidly, he just took off the leg, you know, unstrapped the leg, and walked out holding on to the cow, uh, the calf. The cow also got out, by the way. So anyway, uh, that's how the firemen found Pegleg, 
And he said that when he came on the scene, the fire was already burning pretty strongly. Now, how did the fire start? Well, everybody knows the legend. Mrs. O'Leary, when she was asked how the fire started, said she thought that uh, the cow had kicked over the lamp, which she had brought out to the uh, table to milk the cow, because she went into the house to get some salt for the animal, and when she came back, the barn was on fire. But she didn't see the cow kick over the lantern. Nobody saw it, and nobody to this day knows if that's actually what happened. Probably the cow wasn't responsible. It's more likely that somebody, some transient, uh, some vagrant, was smoking in the barn and dropped some ashes and the tinder-like barn caught fire. But, of course, you can't prove it. And Mrs. O'Leary's cow has gone down in legend as the cause of the Great Chicago Fire. In a way, it's, it's nice to have that because uh, it makes the Great Fire so much more, what would you say, so much more human <laughs> to have a cow start it. Uh, but probably it was somebody smoking in the barn. Well, anyway, the fire was very soon out of control. The Little Giants uh, company did everything they could, but when they turned water on the fire, no other uh, company arrived. A druggist whose name was Bruno Gall turned in a firearm shortly after 9 o'clock, about the same time the Little Giant company got there. They had a firebox outside his store. And then, ten minutes later, he rang the alarm again. And he stood there watching for more fire companies to come in response to the signal. Well, nobody showed up. The Little Giant was the only company on the scene. What happened? Well, it all goes back to that watchman in the courthouse tower about maybe a mile and a half or two miles away from the fire scene. He had seen flames all right, but he misjudged the location of the fire by more than a mile. And he rang the wrong box. He rang the one the Little Giant Company heard as they left the, the engine house, but the signal was for a fire a mile further south. They ignored it, so they found the real fire. Well, the watchman saw the um, increasing blaze from DeCoven Street, and he realized that he had miscalled the, the, uh, the location. So he told the alarm operator to change it. But the alarm operator refused to change the alarm signal. And not only did he refuse to, to change it to a closer uh, location, he repeated the wrong signal for a second time. And as nearly as could be ascertained later, the druggist's alarm never registered on the central board, and so by this time, the accumulation of errors, mechanical failures, exhaustion, and just the wind and bad luck, the fire was now moving swiftly northward towards the scene of the great fire from the day before. Well, you met a fire break there, uh, the best kind of fire break, one that had burned everything, and it was stopped. But the wind was out of the southwest, and about 10 o'clock, a mass of burning material was sent whirling through the air by the wind. 
four blocks through the air to the steeple of St. Paul's Catholic Church. And the flames started on the steeple. Pretty soon, it had enveloped, the fire had enveloped the church and burned over an adjoining factory and got into a lumber mill on the banks of the river. A thousand cords of kindling for stoves for the winter and half a million feet of furniture lumber and three quarters of a million wooden shingles all burned up. They tried to have volunteers fight the flames of water from the river, but they were forced to abandon the attempt, despite the fear that the burning brands from the yard might ignite the whole south division of the city. By this time, all the city's firefighting equipment was mobilized against three columns of fire all out of control. Two of them were moving northward from the original fire on Decoven Street, and the third one was the one at the lumber yard. And then came another bad break. The fire struck across the Chicago River, the South Branch, and caught the Parmalee Omnibus and Stage Company's stables at Jackson and Franklin, um, the corner of Jackson Boulevard and Franklin Street today, on the southwest edge of the business district. The stalls were new, and the lofts were filled with fresh hay for the horses, which hadn't been moved in yet. And a mass of blaming timber came hurtling nearly a quarter of a mile from the west bank of the river, borne by the wind, and the hay and the newly painted lumber blazed up. Nearby was the gas works, of all things, and a short time later the gas works were on fire. A watchman transferred the gas in the tanks to the north side to prevent an explosion, but when he did that, it put out every light in the south side of the city. So the fire was now on the edge of the central business district and west of the river, whether in the inferno of flames three-quarters of a mile long and 150 acres wide, defied any attempt to put it out. And this is shortly after 10 o'clock at night. So the fire companies now had to move. Some of the engines gave up on the west side and rushed over to the south side. And there the fire, like a, uh, an army, moved forward in flanking movements around the business area. In other words, it didn't go straight for the downtown area. One column moved north from the tinderbox shanties of Conley's Patch, one of the, the real vice dens of the city, heading for the Prouder buildings on the South Street further north. Another arm moved, burned east towards the lake and actually burned a little bit south, and flames hurled brands of fire high in the sky. The watchman in the crib at the end of the Intake Lake Tunnel, two miles out from the shore, and a full three miles east of the fire, found the sky filled with a rain of sparks. And uh, his crib was made of wood. So with the help of his wife, he began soaking the roof of the crib to keep the crib from burning. And uh, with that had happened, there would have been no water line. By midnight, the mayor of Chicago, Roswell Mason, sent telegrams in appeal for extra firefighting equipment to Milwaukee and St. Louis and Cincinnati and as far away as New York City. Fire engines were loaded on railroad cars. The trip from Milwaukee to Chicago in those days was about three hours. St. Louis maybe seven or eight hours. 
and Cincinnati maybe eight to ten hours. Well, the fire engines came all right, but by the time they got there, there was absolutely no way that they could put out the fire. The only thing they thought they might do in the meantime was to blow up buildings in the path of the fire. And a former alderman named Hildreth asked for authority to blow up some buildings, and he was granted it. After all, what else was there to do? But his ambition was greater than his skill. And when he tried to blow up the Union National Bank building, all he did was blow out the windows and let the fire in. At the same time, General Phil Sheridan, the Civil War hero, who commanded the Army of the Missouri with headquarters at Fort Sheridan, north of Chicago, had the idea of blowing up buildings, too. But Hildreth had the powder, and he refused to share it with General Sheridan and the Army. And meanwhile, the fire yeah, continued to leap all over the city. About 1 o'clock in the morning, a flaming beam landed in the cupola of the courthouse where the fire watchman was in the first place, and the fire soon spread to the lower floors. They had to let the prisoners out uh, from the jail on the ground level, and the courthouse bell pealed monotonously over the heads and the crackling of the flames. And pretty soon, with the, the uh, prisoners ran off, the deserted building continued to ring the bell because it was done by an automatic mechanism until the power itself fell down, followed by the rest of the building. By this time, the fire was all over the downtown area. The new Grand Pacific Hotel, six stories of Ohio sandstone, 500 rooms, crashed to earth before anybody had ever stayed in it. It never opened. At, uh, that was at Jackson and the South Street. At Dearborn and Adams, right in the middle of downtown, the equally new Bigelow Hotel also went in, up in flames before it even opened its doors. The Tremont House, the oldest hotel in Chicago, went up in flames for the fourth time in its history. Its manager, a man by the name of John B. Drake, was able to save only the money from the safe and some silver. And he ran along the streets and heard men prophesying that Chicago would never recover. He refused to believe it. He was on his way home when he passed in front of the Michigan Avenue Hotel at Michigan Avenue and Congress Street. He saw that it was directly in the path of the flames moving east toward the lake, but the fire hadn't touched it yet. And he had an idea. He turned and went into the lobby and he met the manager, and he made the manager an offer to buy the hotel and all the furniture. The proprietor, besieged by pleas of help for guests uh, dragging their things out into the street, couldn't believe that he was a serious offer. But Drake handed him $1,000 in cash from the Tremont as an advance payment. Well, everybody thought Drake was crazy, including the manager of the hotel, after all, it was about to burn up in the next hour or so, but Drake made the, the deal. Copies of an agreement to buy the hotel, if it survived, were hastily drawn up and witnessed by guests. And a copy of it, Drake picked up, uh, put it in his pocket, picked up his pillowcase full of silverware, and hurried down Michigan Avenue towards his home on the south side. By this time, the sky was lit almost to the brilliance of daylight. And from the distance, the whole city appeared to take on the appearance of a lurid, yellowish red. 
the fire burned so intently that there was a minimum of stroke, a smoke rather, and a maximum of flame. And everywhere, all around and in front of the burning areas, was a blizzard of hot cinders and falling, burning debris. In many places, the red flakes and the hot black ashes filled the air until you couldn't see a block ahead. Crazed animals were dashing through the streets. And in the heart of the fire, the heat was so intense that iron columns two feet thick burned into dust, if you can believe that. Car wheels from the streetcars stood on the tracks, half burned away and half melted, while the tracks turned upward from the twisting force of the flames. Jets of fire consumed fireproof safes and board holes and fireproof walls, and the noise was tremendous, the roar of the flames and the crashing of walls. Not to mention, of course, the screaming people running for their lives through the streets. People crowded up, up against each other to such a degree that fences and buildings collapsed, force of the people pushing against them. So uh, looters, of course, got out. Uh, that, uh, that always happens in the case of a disaster. When Conley's patch went up, the flotsam and jetsam of the city slums floated along with the crowd, smashing windows and catching whatever they could. Uh, stealing whatever they could, fine clothes and silks and whatever. And in front of one dry goods store, a man took one of the company's trucks and drove away with it. Fire and be damned, he said to the guard who was going to threaten to shoot him. And, of course, he got away with it. People with wagons would go along the streets, and people would have things that they wanted to save, and they would hire the wagon driver to take their property to safety. Well, uh, some of the wagon drivers were actually good people doing the right thing, but others simply went a couple of blocks, dumped the stuff, and took some more money from somebody else. You know, disasters like this show us the best and worst of people. One wagon driver asked and was given $1,000 to haul a half million dollars of currency from a bank to the far west side. A half million dollars of currency. That was a thousand well spent, you'd think, huh? Well, almost an hour after the courthouse crashed to the ground, the flames jumped the river again. This time, they jumped the main river where the north and south branch come together and form the main river that goes to the lake. It's only about uh, maybe three quarters of a mile long, but it uh, divides the north side from the south side as the south branch divides the south side from the west side. You know, the flames reached over the river, carrying the fire into a group of railroad cars containing kerosene on the tracks near the river. And you can imagine what happened when the kerosene went up. And then from there, the flames jumped to a livery stable to form another column of fire. And now it began to attack the stately homes and buildings of the north side, the prime residential district in the city. A burning brand, about 10 feet long, landed on the slate covering over the wooden roof of the waterworks. And within a short time, the slate had burned, uh, the um, wood on, wooden roof underneath caught fire, collapsed, the pumps were destroyed, 
and all the, there was no longer any more water in the fire mains except uh, water that could be pumped from the river. The water tower survived. It was not burned, and it was not, uh, you know, its, its walls didn't collapse. And the water tower stands there to this day at the intersection of North Michigan Avenue and Chicago Avenue. The Waterworks building has been restored, and it's also still standing, but it was destroyed during the fire. The water tower survived intact, and so did two homes on the north side, two and only two. One was a home of a wealthy man, Marlon B. Ogden, who managed to uh, keep his house from burning by spilling all water on everything, and when he ran out of water, he used cider, <laughs> uh, kept everything watered down, and somehow his house didn't burn. The only other house in the path of the fire that didn't burn was the home of a policeman who did the same thing Ogden did on a much smaller scale, but he, too, managed to save his house. But the fire kept burning up the north side, and the wind, of course, coming from the southwest is pushing it northeast and to the north, and the fire reached the city limits of Fullerton Avenue, which is, uh, let's see, 24 blocks from the center of the city, three miles. And it reached Fullerton Avenue by Monday night. The last house known to have burned was at Fullerton and Clark Street, uh, three miles north of the central city and about five miles from where the fire originally started. It, that house went up about 10.30 in the evening of Monday night, October 9th. All day the 9th, the fire burned through the downtown area, and it actually backtracked and burned some buildings on the south, uh, south end of the downtown area called Terrace Row on what is now Michigan Avenue near Roosevelt Road. But it never burned the Michigan Avenue Hotel. <laughs> and John B. Drake won his gamble. Um, when he realized by Tuesday that the fire was you know, out in that area and that his uh, purchase of the hotel, he actually had a hotel. He went to the proprietor and said, okay, uh, it's my hotel now. Give me the keys. Well, the proprietor of the hotel said, I'm not going to turn over the hotel. It's the only thing still standing, and I'm not going to give it to you. Well, Mr. Drake called on some of his friends, and they all came to the proprietor together and said, I have a contract that says you sell me the hotel, and I put the money down on it, and if you don't deliver possession in five minutes, well, the lake is out there, and uh, you might find yourself drowning in it. <laughs> the proprietor ponied up in a hotel, and Mr. Drake had himself the only hotel in downtown Chicago. And he kept it for two more years, and then he sold it. And guess what happened right after he sold it? The hotel caught fire and burned to the ground. <laughs> Believe it or not, these things actually happen. Early Monday morning, uh, when great lumber mills along the river caught on, the heat got so intense that people on the beach were forced to go into the water of Lake Michigan in order to be, uh, avoid being suffocated. A man by the name of Mr. Willett ordered horses and his wagons that he owed driven as far out as possible, and many of the refugees clambered into their uh, high-wheeled vehicles to wait out the fire in the lake. 
Others spent hours sitting on the backs of chairs with their feet resting on the seats of the chairs in the water. Judge Lambert Tree, one of the city's leading citizens, and his wife stood knee-deep in water for 14 hours before the fire burned its way out. The fireproof Chicago Tribune building was burned because while the Tribune building itself was, uh, quote, fireproof, made of stone, uh, it had windows and a roof, and the fires on both sides of it eventually got into the building and burned it down. The Palmer House burned about 9 o'clock Sunday night, and afterwards the McVickers Theater. At the Lakefront Baseball Park at the foot of Washington and Randolph Streets, refugees from the fire sat on piles of clothes and mattresses, and the closer the fire came, they tried to bury anything valuable, but uh, that was almost futile, too. In fact, in some places, things were buried, and when the, the, uh, the holes were dug up the next, uh, after the fire, they found the silver it all had, mel had melted anyway from the heat of the fire. It was so hot. Oh, one thing about burying things. What people tried to bury most, the most valuable thing they tried to bury, besides silverware and cash, were pianos. Pianos apparently were very highly prized in those days. And if you had a piano, you would try to get it out of the house and bury it in the yard, hoping the fire would pass over it, because it was so valuable. The number of pianos recorded as being buried was enormous. And not all of those who buried valuables were able to save them, and not all the pianos were buried uh, were saved either. But uh, people tried, and they buried their pianos. The fire burned all through Monday on the north side. On the south side, it ended when the wind changed and the uh, fire no longer backtracked uh, south of 12th Street. It did threaten to backtrack to the west side and burn the rest of the west side, but the wind blew the other way and it didn't. On the west bank, they soaked all the walls of buildings with water from the river, and while the business section was burning itself out, the fire was kept away from the rest of the west side. One building along the river on the east side of the river, a warehouse, was saved at the corner of Randolph Street and what is now Wacker Drive. And that building was still standing when I was a kid growing up in Chicago. And you could tell that this was a pre-fire building by the style of construction. Uh, you know, a brick building that looked like a 19th century building, and it was a 19th century building. Later on, uh, instead of making it a landmark or something, they tore it down and built a high-rise. But uh, that, after all, is progress. So, Outside of the two homes, the policeman's home and the Ogden home, most of the rest of the north side was burned. And by the time it finally burned its way out at Fullerton Avenue where it ran out of houses to burn and ran out of things to, to burn, the rain finally came about 2 o'clock in the morning, Tuesday morning, the 10th of October, and left the city smoking ashes. Now, nobody knows all the details of the Great Chicago Fire. We don't know, for example, how many people were killed. Officially, the total is supposed to have been about 250. It's generally thought that at least 400 people died, but of course 
the bodies were incinerated. Nobody knew that there, there was people had, how many people actually did die. We do know that the fire destroyed over 2,000 acres in the center of the city, burned 17,500 buildings, destroyed property worth more than $200 million, and bankrupted 20-something or 30-something insurance companies. A third of the wealth of the city of Chicago went up. And in uh, terms of cash, uh, at least a million and a half dollars in currency burned up in one location, uh, a customs house, where the, the vault was supposed to be fireproof, and the manager put the money in the fireproof vault, and when he opened it after the fire, it had all burned and required an act of Congress to wipe out that prodigious debt of when it was a million and a half dollars at one time. The destruction of the, Chicago, the Great Chicago Fire is without compare in the great urban fires of history. Uh, the Great Fire of London in 1600-something burned 13,000 houses, not as many as Chicago, drove 200,000 people from their homes, more than in Chicago, but burned only 500 acres of ground, a quarter of the area of the Chicago Fire. The Great Fire of Moscow, uh, following the... Uh, the French occupation of the city in 1813, or was it 1812? 1813, I think. Anyway, the fire of Moscow burned 400 acres, much less than Chicago, and 12,000 houses, much less than Chicago. The area the Chicago fire covered was twice as great as the total areas of the London and Moscow fires together. Did the city die? Not but a long shot. With the uh, ashes still hot, people began erecting little wooden buildings on the, on the property that they owned and going back into business. There's a very uh, interesting picture uh, that has been saved of the very first building built on Washington Street. It was by a man in the real estate business whose name was Mr. Kerfoot, and he built a little wooden shack and put up a sign on it, uh, this was I think on Tuesday, before the ashes had even cooled, and the sign said, W.D. Kerfoot Block, all gone but wife, children, and energy. And he was back in business. Well, Chicagoans, conscious that during the fire they were having their own ordeal, also knew that other fires had burned on that same day. And the irony is, that the Peshtigo fire in Wisconsin killed at least three times as many people as the Chicago fire. At least 800 people died at Peshtigo. The towns in Michigan on the eastern shore of the lake also burned down. Um, but the great Chicago fire is the one we all remember because of the enormous damage that it did and because it happened in a great city. And the city rebuilt quickly. Now, one of the things that happened with the city rebuild is that they adopted the fireproof ordinances so that it would never happen again. And that's why all the buildings in Chicago you see today are fireproof stone or brick buildings. On top of that, when the city was rebuilt, it gave them an opportunity to modernize and to update. <clears throat> and within 20 years after the fire, Chicago had to build the first skyscraper buildings buildings with steel frames and 
heights of 12, 14, 16, 20 stories with elevators. The skyscraper was born in Chicago. And some of the material that was left over in the downtown area that uh, from the burned buildings that had been destroyed, some of that wreckage was used to fill in the uh, lake shore and make what is now Grant Park and Millennium Park and the beautiful Chicago shoreline. The, in other words, they filled in uh, part of the lake with all the rubbish, the rubble, and made parks out of it. And the Chicago Art Institute now stands in Grant Park, and it's the only building on the east side of Michigan Avenue between Randolph Street and Roosevelt Road. Chicago has the world's most beautiful and greatest front yard with all parkland for a distance of, oh, more than a mile uh, in front of the city uh, proper. And that's all because of the fire and the aftermath of it. There's at least one more story that deserves telling. It's the story of Crosby's Opera House. Mr. Crosby built a big theater uh, called an Opera House because he did intend to do concerts there. And he built it in 1865, and it was supposed to open on April 14, 1865. Abraham Lincoln was shot the night before, and the Crosby Opera House did not open on time. A few years later, Mr. Crosby spent $100,000 in 1870 money to refurbish his beautiful opera house, and he was going to the grand reopening on October 9th with a concert by uh, what later became the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Well, needless to say, um, Mr. Crosby's opera house did not reopen on October 9th. Instead, it burned to the ground. He tried again later. The man had stick-to-itiveness, but uh, Crosby's Opera House was cursed, I guess. So was the uh, Palmer House Hotel. That burned three or four times, and the Tremont House. Hotels burned a lot because I guess they had a lot of flammable material inside. So anyway, the Great Chicago Fire did not destroy the city, and in fact, within 20 years, Fire 1871, uh, 20 years later, 22 years later, Chicago set out to celebrate its founding and the discovery of America by Columbus. 1892 was the 500th anniversary of Columbus's, quote, discovery, unquote. And to celebrate that, Chicago decided to hold a great world's fair. And indeed, they held it, and it was so popular that it lasted for two years, uh, well, actually, it didn't open the first year, but uh, it, it was there through 1893 rather than 1892, and it changed architecture and changed the lives of people. Most people saw electricity, electric-lighted buildings for the first time at the fair. The Ferris wheel was the great attraction of the fair, the first Ferris wheel ever built by George Washington Ferris, for whom it's named, and they've just announced that they're going to build another one now, at Staten Island, New York, it's going to be 600 feet high. The Ferris wheel in Chicago was big, but it wasn't that big. It was certainly the biggest in the world up until then. But at any rate, um, Chicago recovered within 20 years, fully recovered, and had a million people by the year 1900. And the city continued to grow and get better 
and better and better. And Chicago today, I am proud to say, as a native of the city and a part-time resident there when I'm not here, uh, the city of Chicago is a miraculous place. If you've never been to Chicago, you owe it to yourself to go at least once to see the city. It keeps reinventing itself. It reinvented itself after the fire. It reinvented itself again in the 20th century. And now in the 21st century, it's reinventing itself again. Areas which, when I grew up, were Skid Row, you know, where the, the winos hung out, are now fabulous new built-up residential areas. Uh, the old stockyards are gone. All Some of the old railroad yards are gone. And in their places are more residences and trees and shopping centers and, and just amazing. It's just amazing. The city has completely reinvented itself, rebuilt itself in the last, uh, let's see, 30 or 40 years. The Chicago River is still there. and You can take boat rides on the river and they will show you, the Chicago Architecture Foundation in particular, will show you some of the great buildings in the city from the perspective of the river. It's a way to see Chicago, it really is. So as I say, you owe it to yourself to see Chicago. Just as people have wanted to see Chicago um, for many, many years now, and Chicago is today, I still think, the great city of North America, certainly the great inland city of North America. And nothing rivals it for architecture, except maybe New York. Now Los Angeles rivals it for size, but not for character. And all of this came not only in spite of, but actually partly because of the great Chicago fire of 1871. Anybody got comments or questions? All right. Let me say first that you've now heard about Ira's city, Chicago, and it is a great, great city. It really is. Okay. Uh, let's see if, if people have questions, please, from the audience. Okay. Uh, the Palmer House, uh, I've stayed there a couple of times. Do you know when that was? That wasn't built after the fire, I guess. It's a oh, the current Palmer House uh, was the, the uh, I think, the fourth building with that name. Uh, the one that's built today was not built until about 1920, the one that's there today. Uh, uh, it was succeeded okay. after the fire. There was another Palmer House before this Palmer House. <laughs> and the Palmer House today is the Hilton. It's a, it's a Hilton Hotel. Hello? Uh, is the Drake Hotel, the present Drake Hotel, standing on the site of the old, the, the original one? Because my family, I have to say that my mother grew up at Lakewood and, on Lakewood and Catalpa at the corner, and my sister lives in Glenview. Yeah, the Drake Hotel today is not on the site of the hotel that Mr. Drake bought the day of the fire. Uh, the Drake Hotel is on Oak Street on the near, near north side of the city, but I suspect that it is Mr. Drake's name that uh, is attached to that hotel. And it is considered, to, even today, uh, as the ritziest hotel in Chicago. And when the Queen of England came to Chicago in 1959, guess where she stayed? The Drake Hotel. Drake Hotel. All right. Another question, please, from the audience. Ira, as always, it's wonderful hearing you. Um, where did the people go um, as their homes caught fire, as their, uh, as 
all of their places caught fire. There was no Red Cross to take care of them. People in those days didn't have cars, of course. Um, how and where, well, I mean, where did they go? Well, most of them eventually went to the lake because that was the, you know, that was the safest place. So people would go run to the lake shore. And I mentioned how people spent hours and hours in the water until the fire burned itself out. Then afterwards, they would uh, return to the city. They still owned the land. The buildings might not have been there, but they still owned the land and uh, rapidly began to rebuild. So there were no shelters, however, there were, they, they had to improvise. Yeah, they improvised. Yeah, okay. and many of them just many of them just spent the the night of the fire in the uh, at the lake shore in the water or along the along the uh, shoreline. Uh, Lincoln Park today uh, is one of the great parks in Chicago on the north side, but at that time it was being converted uh, into a park, having been a cemetery. And there were open graves where they were moving uh, corpses out and coffins out. And some people went to the, the cemetery, Lincoln Park Cemetery, and spent the fire there. Yes. the uh, You mentioned the fires up in Michigan. Was that the huge fires that they had from the cutover timberland that I read about? Well, the Pestigo fire was actually Wisconsin. I know there, was, there were fires in Michigan also, but Pestigo was the big one. Uh, Pestigo was a Pestigo was in the lumbering area of Wisconsin where all the big you know, lumbering trees were, and it was a lumbering town. It had a uh, lumber works and uh, a, a wood you know wood uh, wood products work, and uh, Pestigo was caught in a what must have been something like a hurricane of fire, and that's why so many people were killed there because the fire advanced rapidly. And there really wasn't any place for them to go. People in Pestigo had only a little river to get into, unlike Chicago that had Lake Michigan. And the fire moved extremely fast and cut off people in huge numbers. Yeah, I... uh, at least 800 people died in Pestigo, and there weren't more than maybe eight or 900 people in the town. Yeah, they had some American History magazine or something I read. Yeah. The, the Illinois River, they must have rehabilitated it. Is that... Well, the Illinois River uh, is formed, if I'm not mistaken, by the junction of the Des Plaines and the Kankakee, and that's somewhat southwest of Chicago, not more than 30 or so miles southwest of Chicago. And then the Illinois River uh, flows through the state of Illinois and into the Mississippi at the town of Alton, Illinois, just north of St. Louis. And the Illinois River has been a great artery of commerce uh, ever since 18 whatever, ever since it was discovered by uh, whites in 1800 and whatever it was. Now, the first people, the first uh, explorer to use the Illinois River that I can think of was La Salle in 1682, uh, a Frenchman. He went down Does, the Illinois River. Doesn't the word Chicago, wasn't that an Indian word named Muddy, Muddy Puddle or Mud Puddle or something? Well, it is, a, it is supposed to be, it's supposed to be a corruption of an Indian word except that nobody knows what the Indian word really meant. Uh, ah. Some people mean, some people thought it meant uh, wild onions. Uh, that's the nice version. Others <laughs> thought it meant skunk. <laughs> but nobody
nobody really knows what the name Chicago uh, came okay. from. It was an Indian word as mistranslated by the French. Ira, wonderful, wonderful talk tonight. My question to you is, as the fire was raging, did Chicago have trouble um, with the fire departments, with the fire departments, I should say, staying in communication? And I ask that because I've read about how in New York, especially in the Five Points, you had different gangs who were working with each fire department, and so certain fire departments couldn't help each other because you had a gang that was, you know, backing a certain fire department. Did Chicago have that problem as well? Not to my knowledge, and I think probably because of the Great Fire. Uh, fire protection in Chicago is such a concern, and it has been for, what, 130 years now? Uh, fire protection is something you don't mess with in Chicago. Uh, Chicago yeah, is extremely fire conscious, probably more than any city in the world, for the very good reason that no other city in the world burned up the way Chicago did. So he said not to his knowledge. I, I, he just came in right at the end. Not to my knowledge, no. I know the, I know the uh, volunteer fire companies in New York uh, were often, shall we say, came to blows. <laughs> uh, there was actually physically fighting between them. Well, since nobody seemed to have any other questions, I wanted um, to know what happened to the O'Leary family. To what? Were they scorned oh. or... Uh, as far as I know, the O'Leary family all survived the fire. Uh, it was often said that Mrs. O'Leary was hosting a, a party for relatives who had just come over from Ireland, and that's why she went to the barn to get milk from the cow for punch. Uh, she always denied that they were having a party and that uh, there wasn't any such thing. She said she went to the barn to milk the cow all right, but then came back to the house to get salt because from the cow because the cow was thirsty and needed to drink water and uh, had to give the cow some salt so the cow would drink some water. Anyway, uh, the O'Leary family did survive. Her husband, Patrick O'Leary, was a laborer who worked on the railroad. And I don't know how many children they had. They had several children. And none of them were at all hurt in the fire. Um, but whatever happened to them after, long after the fire, I don't know. Yeah, no, it was it was clearly uh, wasn't their fault. Uh, even if Mrs. O'Leary did leave the lantern out in the in the yeah. uh, in the barn, uh, it's probably not the source of the fire. Uh, the fire probably started with somebody smoking in the stable and just dropping ashes. Stables okay. are very flammable with all the hay and wood, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, chances are it wasn't the cow. Well, Ira, on behalf of Accessible World, we want to thank you so much again. This is really a great story, a, a history, and this, you did a fabulous job as usual, and we thank you so very much. Well, I have to uh, acknowledge one of my sources, uh, Fabulous Chicago by Emmett Dedman. He wrote the book about 1950-something. Let's see the publication okay. date. 1953. 1953. Right. And it was published by... See where the publisher was, and spell his last name if you can. Denton uh, Emmett Dedman, D-E-D-M-O-N. He Thank was a you. Chicago newspaper man. Um, Random House was the publisher. All right. Well, I will. Thank you so Chicago. much. We'll be in touch. All right. Thank, Thank you. you Goodbye. Thank you, Ira. Bye now. Okay.